A fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is exactly what is needed to switch off the fossil fuel pipelines that are driving crazily hot temperatures, flash flooding and droughts that directly threaten the global food production system. Exposure to climate impacts is spreading and every day more of us move into harm's way. In this Climate Gen episode I speak with the chair of the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, Sepora Berman. Sepora and her colleagues are designing the framework by which we can begin to switch off the fossil fuel supply that is the root cause of what is a real-time climate emergency. In the next episode, I'm speaking with Professor Jason Box of the Geological Survey of Greenland about what he is now calling atmospheric river rapids that are echoed in lower latitudes and are destroying property, ecology and taking human lives. Thank you for your support in keeping this work going. Please share and encourage others to join the discussion. Sepora, thank you very much for joining me today. It's great to meet you. In Canada, the cause and effect could not be more stark. In Paris in 2015, when the new Trudeau administration turned up to sign the Paris Agreement, they chanted, Canada is back. Has the post-Harper sort of Trudeau government been an honest broker in delivering the Paris Agreement? Um, it's a great question. Thanks for having me. It, you know, it's, it, it's a difficult question because on the metrics that we've set in the last 30 years for climate policy, which are, which focus on emissions targets and demand reduction, the Trudeau administration has been night and day from the Harper administration. Prime Minister Trudeau has put in place an economy-wide price on carbon. He has put in place zero emission vehicle targets, low carbon fuel standards, a lot of the metrics that we define good climate policy on. And yet, Canada hasn't bent the curve on our emissions. And the fastest growing sector of Canada's emissions is oil and gas, not to burn for heat or transport, but simply oil and gas emissions from the production side, because Canada is just producing so much and continuing to expand the production of oil and gas. But that hasn't been a criteria for governments to define climate leadership. They were judged and have been judged entirely on the emissions and the demand reduction side. And experiencing that firsthand as a Canadian and someone who was advising governments on climate policy, that made me realize this incredible gap we have in how we define climate policy today, that we're, we're really only focused on constraining demand and reducing emissions, and we're just allowing the industry to, to increase production, which, which locks in future emissions. I mean, you don't build a pipeline for 10 years, you spend 20 billion on a pipeline like Trudeau did, thinking that 40 years from now, 50 years from now, we're going to be consuming more oil. And in fact, creating that infrastructure and that oversupply is impacting demand. The theory has always been that, you know, demand will go down and then supply will go down and magically that will happen, but it's not happening. How do you view the challenge globally? And especially in regard to opportunities where we might be able to try and turn this around. Globally, I think what we're seeing in fossil fuel producing nations and nations who, who, are, who are buying from producing nations is that there is no longer a denial at that level of climate change. There is no longer a, you know, a refusal to acknowledge that we need to phase down or out fossil fuels. But the fact is, Every country and every company wants to be the last barrel sold. Yes, we're going to use less oil. This is the, you know, the, the government of Canada is saying to me, yes, we're going to use less oil. The world is going to use less oil, but it should be ours. That last barrel sold should be ours. And so 
production continues to go up. And that is not constrained by existing international agreements. It's not constrained by the norm of what good climate policy is. I think that is starting to shift. Starting, I think, probably three or four cops ago, we started having a conversation about fossil fuels, which sounds crazy, right? We're 30 years in. We ran a campaign as the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty Initiative and Network Around the World at it was COP26, um, called Say the F Words at COP, which, you know, the, the words fossil fuels don't appear in the Paris Agreement at all. The words oil, gas, or coal, which is astonishing. We've made this so complicated and the industry has been successful in making themselves invisible in the whole structure. But when you really pare it all back, 86% of the emissions trapped in our atmosphere, smothering the earth, causing the dramatic increase in wildfires and heat waves and extreme weather around the earth come from three things. They come from oil, gas, and coal. And we have the technology today to replace most, not all, but most of their uses. And in fact, if we do, especially for electricity, it's cheaper. So it makes no sense that we're continuing to expand production and governments are putting their investment in carbon capture and storage and subsidies to the oil and gas industry to keep their fossil fuel industry alive, while in fact it is cheaper to produce at scale solar, wind, geothermal. I think we're all clear that now that the, the Paris Agreement is essential and that there is a missing piece, that countries are not negotiating on who gets to produce how much fossil fuels, and where, and for how long. And until that starts to happen, we're literally only cutting with one side of the scissors, with the demand side. We need to cut the supply and constrain the supply as well, and that's why so many of us from around the world are rallying behind the idea of a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty as a companion to the Paris Agreement. Okay, and that was my next question, really, is that how does the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty plug into this? Can you give us a little bit of the structure and the way it works? The principles and ideas behind the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty have literally been taken from nuclear non-proliferation. And there's two critical things that we learned from history and from nuclear non-proliferation. One is that the journey matters towards a treaty. Proposing a treaty and having the conversations about how the science demands us to stop expansion and everybody needs to stop expansion. So how do you do that? How do you negotiate that? What are the rules around that? What we're stockpiling no longer keeps us safe. So with nuclear non-proliferation for years, I mean, I grew up thinking that in the early years, nuclear weapons were what were gonna keep us safe from the threat. and over the period of that campaign, you know, probably about a decade, that shifted to a recognition that stockpiling nuclear weapons is what threatens us. That we already had enough nuclear weapons to blow up the planet six times over, and that continuing to stockpile them was dangerous. So the norm shifted around nuclear expansion. It's the exact same thing that we need to happen with fossil fuel expansion. Today, fossil fuels are our weapons of mass destruction. They kill more people on this planet just from air pollution alone than any single thing. One in five people today will die because of air pollution from fossil fuels, a premature death, let alone, of course, climate impacts, heat waves, etc. So fossil fuels need to be seen as not bringing us prosperity, which again is what we all grew up with, they need to be seen as what threatens us. 
And so that norm shift is starting to happen. That's actually critical. So we've designed the treaty along the three pillars of nuclear nonproliferation. The first pillar is stop stockpiling, stop expansion. So what kind of negotiations need to go on under that pillar in order to make that happen? The second pillar is managing the wind down of production. So if you just stop expansion today, many of those fields will go on for decades. So the wealthy countries should have to be winding down first because they've already taken up so much of the global carbon budget. So managing the wind down and agreements around how to manage the wind down, we should also be managing the wind down with an equity filter in place. Which countries are more dependent on fossil fuel production for literally keeping their roads paved and their hospitals open. I mean, Malaysia, it's a massive part of their budget on everything else. That's not true of Canada. It's not true of the United States, of Norway. And so which countries are going to be more vulnerable? They should have a longer lead time, etc. So that's the second pillar. And then the third pillar is about um, fast-tracking the just transition and the move to a renewable economy. And what kind of international cooperation and agreements do we need under that third pillar to make sure that we're not jumping from the pan into the fire? Where are there no-go areas on the planet for mining, for renewables and batteries? How are we cooperating on the rules as we fast-track the renewable revolution? That has to be an area of international cooperation. And so those three pillars are what we're designing frameworks, principles, and negotiations under. But ultimately, the nation states themselves will write the treaty. There's no draft of a treaty yet. There's ideas and frameworks and principles, and now countries are starting to join on. We have six countries that have endorsed the Fossil Fuel Treaty, all from the South Pacific, but that's where climate leadership has emerged successfully over the last decade. Look at the goal of 1.5. We wouldn't have it. The ambition of 1.5 without South Pacific nations and islands. You know, we wouldn't have the concept of loss and damage. We wouldn't have the International Court of Justice on climate change. And so, we specifically started working with island nations in the South Pacific in the first couple of years of the treaty, and now we're expanding those conversations. And the nations themselves are leading multilateral dialogues with other countries to get other countries to join. There's a lot of complexity in all of that, obviously. And when you were saying the we, can you talk a little bit about the we, who you're interfacing with, who are the people that are making it happen? I was very lucky and honored in 2019 to win the Climate Breakthrough Award, which is an award given to a couple of people on the planet every year to try out new risky climate solutions. And so with that award, I brought together a, a steering committee of the first academics who had ever started discussing the concept, Andrew Newell and Peter Sim in the UK. And and then started reaching out to lawyers and diplomats and experts around the world to start developing the treaty and started hiring. So we now have a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty secretariat, which it coordinates the conversations with countries, the outreach to civil society groups, the development of intellectual frameworks. We've been identifying what are the barriers for countries to stop expansion trade agreements, liability, compensation. We've been starting to produce white papers and thinking so that when countries do come to the table, we have uh, a foundation for the treaty. So the Secretariat coordinates communications, advocacy campaign work around the world to support civil society groups that want to campaign on the fossil fuel treaty, political and diplomacy initiatives and research. And then the campaign and the development of the treaty is now open sourced in some ways. 
A lot of countries are joining. They're taking different roles as they join in terms of the diplomatic outreach and the development of, of the treaty itself. We have close to 3,000 civil society groups that have endorsed and joined. I would probably say of that 3,000, there's two or 300 who are actually already campaigning on the treaty in their countries. And that means organizing marches, organizing events, organizing to get cities to pass motions. In the nuclear uh, movement, having cities come on board and endorse the treaty was, was critical to building the momentum to getting nation states to take it seriously. We now already have 90 cities that have endorsed the fossil fuel treaty, including some of the largest cities in the world on on it on every continent and so the the work is being coordinated by a secretariat but really developed around the world by different civil society organizations and then academics we have academics from universities around the world who are participating in the workshops and in the development of the principles and development of the barriers work and then there's the health community. We have the World Health Organization that is endorsed and a lot of health organizations around the world starting to dig in and work on the fossil fuel treaty. And what I love about it is that this is a true movement. Whether or not you want to stop the expansion of fossil fuels because it threatens your water or your human rights, your indigenous territorial rights, your treaty rights or climate change, it makes sense to people. It's it's tangible. Why are we still building this bad stuff? You know, we're currently on track to build 110% more oil, gas, and coal by 2030 than we can ever burn if we want to stay below 1.5 degrees. I think the logic of it really makes sense to people. And I think it is providing a, a mechanism for people to engage in the issue around the world and to feel like we're greater than the sum of our parts. I believe that our one of our central jobs in the coming year is to make that connection for decision makers and to force them to not look away from it. Because it's not okay to say you understand that we need to move away from fossil fuels, but ours are okay. At this moment in history, every ton of carbon matters. And I think that's really important for people who are feeling overwhelmed by the climate emergency and feel like it's too late. It's never too late to save lives. And that's what we do by stopping new fossil fuel projects. We are saving lives. Every ton of carbon can now be attributed to a number of deaths. And so we need to face, I call it staring into the sun, we need to face the climate emergency that's in front of us. And, and we have to every day think about what we can do in order to encourage governments to stop expanding the products that are killing us and manage through international cooperation, manage that wind down everywhere. And at this moment in history, leadership matters. I hear a lot from Canadian politicians, oh, Sapporo, if we, if we don't drill, someone else will. You know, Saudi Arabia will just increase production. What they fail to recognize is that when you look at intransigent issues throughout history, leadership matters. If we can't lead in the wealthy countries, the, the fossil fuel five, as we call them, who are expanding production, but have the wealth and the capacity to not do it and to stop expansion and manage the wind down quickest, and those countries are Australia, Canada, the UK, Norway, and the United States. The majority of the world's expansion of production in the next five years is in those countries. And if those countries stopped expanding and committed to manage a wind down, um, then they would set a new norm. Let's remember that Russia, the US, they never signed the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, but they stopped stockpiling because the norm had shifted. It became elephants for ivory.
What is the next signal that, that will be significant for this treaty? I think we will start to see more countries joining uh, the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. I would even say before the end of the year, and I think we're going to see countries um, from all continents uh, joining. And if you look at the history of other treaties, once you have a core group, 10 countries that represent not just one region, that core group can start to develop a treaty and set a norm. And quite frankly, they, they create social license for other countries to join. They create a, you know, a buffer. It becomes more of a norm. And once they start actually developing language of the treaty, then many more countries will join because they don't want to be left out in deciding what is negotiated and what isn't. What are the different ways that individuals, organizations are engaging with the treaty? to help it gain that sort of social license, if you like. What we're trying to do as the Secretariat is provide the information, coordination, and materials. So you can literally go online at fossilfueltreaty.org. You can sign up as an individual, and then you can you can decide how you want to work on it. Maybe you want to organize letter writing to your to your. Uh, federal government. Maybe you want to see if your city has endorsed. There's an initiative called On Parliamentarians for a Fossil Fuel Free Future that are just getting individual MPs, MLAs, and parliamentarians to sign up to create that groundswell. The idea is to create a groundswell. And so there's so many different ways that you can do that. And we have a staff at the Secretariat, a campaign director, regional directors, cities who can support you in doing that. So anyone that wants to get involved can literally just go to fossilfueltreaty.org, check out the materials, send a note to us if you want more information or you want someone to call you and help you brainstorm uh, for your campaign. But there's a million ways to get involved and I'm sure many that we haven't even thought of yet. Okay, well, look, it's been fabulous to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you.